0: I'm actually a massive fan of the of the phrase I don't and using that where most people use I can't you know oh I'm sorry I can't because it's on a Saturday and this and that oh no no no, I'm sorry I don't schedule anything on weekends or I don't do I don't do I don't coach right because I want to be focused on building out content that hopefully is self-paced and I might do a little focus groups from time to time on that content but like I don't do that. So, no, I'm sorry. I can't do it. It's not even I can't do it. I just, I don't do that. That's not part of my business. You're listening to The Breakdown with me,
1: Chris Clearfield. The Breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy, complex world. I'm your host and fellow learner, and I'm glad you're here. Okay, well, I will just start out by saying that I am excited to talk to my friend David Berkus. Uh, David is a writer who has written for years about really interesting things creativity, networking, um, what it means to be a leader in our kind of modern times, and how the nature of work is changing, which I think is something that you've been thinking about for a long time, uh, and I think many of us are now catching up to, to, to this kind of fundamental shift that's, that's happening. Um, so I'm really excited to talk to you. In addition to talking about your, your work and your background, we'll also be talking about how you work with teams to help them improve, help them get better. Um, and with that, why don't, we, why don't we kick it off?
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me.
1: I'm, I'm super, super excited. Um, so how, how did you kind of get started um, down this path? How did you get started sort of writing about this stuff? You've written four four or five books, is that right?
0: Well, let's go four and a half. Uh, okay, four and a half. <laughs> so I've written four books and I did a little project in late 2019 uh, that came out in early 2020. I did a little project with Audible that is You know, it's maybe it's it's a two-hour-long audio project, but it's maybe twenty thousand words. So I feel I feel weird calling that bookish, yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's what the it's like an Atlantic article from nineteen (laughs) ninety, right, right, right. I feel like their word counts have shrunk dramatically over the last thirty years, but yeah, I mean, I so depending on who I'm talking to. Um, I usually introduce myself as an organizational psychologist, which is true, or I say I'm trained as an organizational psychologist, et cetera, which is true. Um, The 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 truest true is that uh, I'm trained as a writer. I went to undergrad to study English and creative writing, thinking that I wanted to be that sort of great American novelist. When you're 18 years old, your grand existential crisis, if you're um, an aspiring writer, is do I want more of the sort of literary fiction where I'm brilliant, but I'm starving? Or do I want to sell out and do like write like thrillers or sci-fi or something like that? And I don't I don't mean the term sell out to degrade those, but like those are the two big things, right? Uh, Same thing in film, right? Do I want to direct Marvel movies or do I want to direct classic cinema that wins awards but nobody watches, right? Um, And it was in that time that I found a lot of early Gladwell pieces and some of the most of the names I've honestly forgotten because it's the people that like came. Gladwell was writing in the in the New Yorker. Um, and it was the people that came before like the Heath brothers or before Dan Pick. I, th- I think Free Agent Nation actually came out when I was undergrad, but I wasn't aware of it. But those early, early social science writers who found a way to blend research and human behavior with storytelling that exemplified the point better. I mean, prior to that, business books were very prescriptive, right? They were dry. They were very yeah. dry. Even the, great, like, even the great ones like Peter Drucker, it's
1: very... Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a cadence to it.
0: Right. I mean, very dry. And the, and the only thing you had was like, it was either a case study of a whole business, which those are, are fascinating, but also sort of sample size of one. So you can't really draw a lesson from that. It's just sort of fascinating. Um, or they were, yeah, like you said, they were very dry. Here's the 12 steps to this or the seven habits of this, or, or like you said, or, or here's how to be an effective executive, et cetera. So this idea that you could blend the same storytelling techniques that I had learned um, for most of my undergrad learning with, with stuff that actually helped people and then helped me not to starve, that was fascinating to me. So that became the, oh, that's, that's what I want to do. So I went to graduate school to study organizational psychology, um, did a master's at the University of Oklahoma, and then I was married, well, I still am married to, but uh, she's no longer a medical student. I was married to a medical student at the time. So when I got done with my master's, she still had two years left. So I just thought, what the heck, let's do a doctorate too so which is the most cavalier way to say it but like i mean we had we had two years into our marriage we were doing nothing with study dates because we both were in graduate school then i finished it was like we can dramatically overhaul our life or we could just go further into debt let's do it um so, <laughs> so that's what we did. I, did I did a um a doctorate from regent university in virginia beach that was very low residency which was kind of the reason for picking it because once your wife is tied to a medical school, you can't really go anywhere. Right. And that was where in, in that program was where I really got to to play around with, okay, doing research, but I also get to write more practitioner articles and that sort of stuff. Um, I started a podcast while I was uh, in that program um, before it was cool. I mean, these were back in the days when you had to like manually FTP. I, I still have CyberDuck somewhere on my computer, actually, to manually FTP audio files up and create the... RSS thing yourself. Now everybody just pays. You had to crank.
1: Enough. You had to crank the c- condenser. You did bike, right. And on a cold you had day, you would
0: plug it into a block heater. Yeah, it was. It was. You know. Right. <laughs> yeah, but the idea was to um, to really exemplify and and try and connect with and really point a spotlight at the people that were doing this. This was this was 2009, 2010. Um, there weren't as many of these sort of business authors. It, it also helped that I, I used to joke that we were a top 50 business podcast in iTunes. As by my count, I was the 47th business, business podcast in iTunes ever, ever. Yeah. Right. So it's pretty easy to be top five. And but that that was what started building up the network, started building out connections, giving me opportunities to write for a lot of places. Um, that eventually led to the first book, which came out in 2013. And then you know I've had a lot of other wandering things and experiments and all that sort of stuff. But um, that's that's been the way ever since. So really, at the at the core of everything else that is the business of Burke is that idea of being a writer because that's what 17-year-old me wanted to be. Um, So I still write all my own books. (laughs) That is a
1: whole other very interesting uh, aspect of this that we could spend hours delving into. Totally. Um, Yeah. In fact, when Andras and I wrote our um, proposal for Meltdown, which we entered into a contest that the FT and McKinsey ran, and we were then talking with agents about it, one of them kind of looked at us and were like, so, like... This is good. Did you write this yourselves? <laughs> and we're like, not quite sure how to take that comment, uh, but the answer was yes, we did write it ourselves, and and thank you for the compliment. I guess, like,
0: <laughs> well, you okay? So let me see if I remember. Didn't you win that FTT and? We did. Yeah, yeah, we did.
1: We won that We won that contest. So that was kind of what launched us on our path.
0: My knowledge of you precedes our our actual relationship. So I was in, was actually in Singapore, in the massive flights to Singapore. I listened to the audiobook of Meltdown. Uh, and that happened to be about six months before we actually met, um, which was at Thinkers 50. And, and I think... <laughs> I think can I be totally honest with you? I think yeah. it was like, oh, you're Chris Coo- Yeah, you wrote Meltdown. I, was, I feel like that was the only time that happened to you that day when someone was like, oh, I know who you are. You wrote. Totally, Meltdown. that's totally the
1: only time it happened to me. <laughs> yes, it's, which is totally fascinating. And I was like, I was like, you were like, you really liked the book, and and part of me was like, like I don't know if this guy is like shining me on because like <laughs> I I like I you know there are other people in that room that that know me and that have read the book, but the intersection of like not knowing who i am in another context and but co- connecting with me through the book is not something that happens that often and um i think it's it's really interesting because you know we're really proud of the work that we did for meltdown um and i think it's a great book and i think that the way we framed it made it it made it hard for um it wasn't clear who the niche was that the book was speaking to and and that's something that we can we can talk about today and and i know something you've thought a lot about that i think is really interesting you mentioned just a minute ago uh networking and um you wrote a book on kind of uh, we can describe it in different ways but sort of like what the useful form of networking actually is that's not like showing up at at a, at a cocktail party and introducing yourself to strangers, which of course we can't do right now. So I'm curious (laughs) kind of, um, yeah. How how did you, how did you come to that topic and, and, um, what were your, like, what are your insights from it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, So the first book I wrote was The Miss of Creativity, which was, even though the podcast and all my writing was around, really around leadership and teams, right? And that's like, if you ask me what I do now, I have some well-polished elevator pitch around helping teams do their best work ever, right? Um, But we wrote a book around creativity and teams because, well, candidly, because I was 28 and who wants to read a leadership book from a (laughs) 28-year-old? So we wrote a book about creativity and innovation, still steeped in psychology steeped in correcting myths and misconceptions, which is a big theme throughout most of my work. Um, and then we were under new management, which I think is the book that people wanted me to write. Like to your point about an easy to, um, to grasp, is this for me type of book, that was just a, hey, you know, all of these weird trends that you're seeing, and some people are saying they're the future of work, and some people are saying they're fad. Well, here's where the psychology stands on each of these issues, right? But in both of those books, I incorporated a little bit in the world of network science, which is just fascinating to me, right? Beyond just playing totally like six degrees of Kevin Bacon, right? The, the interconnectedness idea, the idea of weak ties, the idea of structural holes. Um, we, I, as I wrote the book, we went through this. Um, I mean, it was kind of minor. It wasn't that big of a deal. Election in 2016 that really spoke to some of the the rifts in, um, in our country and the network of our sort of society, et cetera. So... I kind of got the idea that like this is, this is what I think needs to be um, spoken to because there was a gap, right? Um, there was a gap between, in my mind, in the market, there were networking advice books, right? Here's how to win friends and manipulate people. Here's why you should always invite people out to dinner, right? And they were great, nothing against them. But again, kind of like the, the corporate memoir, they're a sample size of one, right? So unless you are the same type of person with the same charismatic personality as that person it's not all that relevant right and then there were books by the actual researchers right nicholas kristakis and james fowler have an amazing book on network science duncan Watts's book is amazing but they're drier they're much more academic um and and they're they're really the only like the only prescription in any of them is isn't this fascinating which is great (laughs) like they are fascinating but they don't sort of help people so the idea became, what if we could split it down the middle? What if we could have a book that was, um, that described how the network works and then also said, now that you know these things, here's what that means. That means a whole lot less yeah. networking events and a whole lot more getting to know the people that are in your network. That means going to events actually where people are doing something other than networking because we build bonds with people better. There's a lot of research on that when we're, when we're active together with them, working on something instead of um, just being there to, to connect with people. So a lot of that sort of research. So that became Friend of a Friend, which was um, a really interesting, really interesting book to write because it also let me look back through my own... At this point, about eight years of doing all of this stuff and figure out, oh, that's why this worked and that's why this didn't work and that's why yeah. I hate cocktail parties and that's why, right? So, um, so that was really interesting too. But yeah, the the goal was really to give people something that applies to everyone because it's not, as, as I say often in a lot of interviews, it's not actually about growing your network. It's you can't improve your network, you can't strengthen your network. It's not your network. There's just this. This network, right? There's that 8 billion people network. It has clusters of maybe your industry or maybe your city or whatever it is, but it's the network. And when you commit yourself to understanding it and understanding where you are in it, you start to figure out what you're missing, how to, how to fix that. And then you write your own prescriptions based on that. And it usually doesn't look like just running a numbers game of going to all of these cocktail parties and praying that the people who are there are the right people for you. It looks a whole lot more like exploring the fringes of your network, reconnecting with people you already know, Etc. cetera. And uh, it looks, I mean, a whole lot less awkward, which is great too.
1: What's a way that this had, you said you kind of looking back, this has showed up in, in your, uh, success, but what's a way that you have kind of since writing that book sort of, you know, implemented in a practical way for yourself? Like what's a, what's the takeaway that you have taken away for yourself?
0: Yeah. So I, um, as I was writing the book and, and going back through all the research around the strength of weak ties for example which is get some play in uh, what i would call the prescriptive range of literature on networking but it's usually hey when you're looking for a job go reach back out to all of your right or or if you get recruited into like to sell essential oils or some other network marketing company they're like go back and hit up all your old friends on pay it's a terrible use of the actual strength of like the lesson of all of these studies on the power of dormant and weak ties Is that you need a system to be checking in with them regularly so that it's not awkward when it comes time to reconnect like not everybody can be your friend the lesson is not turn all of your weak ties into strong ties the lesson though is to be cordial enough and check in with them enough that they're really not uh anytime they need you or that you need them you can just reach out to them and start the conversation instead of i started describing it as the clock of awkwardness Right. Mm, anytime you, anytime I love that. You talk to somebody, the stopwatch starts, and then the clock of awkwardness starts ticking. And the longer you go before between interactions, the more awkward it is the next time. And and that's really the goal and the lesson of strength of weak ties is to reset that clock as often as you can. So um, that was something originally I was using like software to track who am I interacting with and how often, et cetera. And then I learned that it's really just a habit. If you when people pop into your head take the 15 seconds to send them a text message that says, hey, Chris, I was thinking about you today, and I hope you're well, right? Or, hey, Chris, I uh, accidentally blew a fuse in the plug of my uh, office, and so now it has this char mark around it, and it reminded me of you, so I figured I'd reach out, right? (laughs) (laughs) Little, Little stuff like that goes a a long way. I mean like I've never been on the receiving I've, I've never had someone mad at me because I said I was thinking about them and I hope they're well or forward because I forwarded them an article about the fact that uh, that my Philadelphia Eagles are currently number 1 in the NFC East despite having a terrible record. It's just less terrible than everyone else. So anybody that know that's a fellow Eagles fan got an email on Monday morning, you know, similar thing, right? Um, it's these little habits that become powerful. And that's what I think when people like in the book we talked about Adam Palmer who was also in Adam Grant's book who is you know the, the most successful networker in the world? Even though he's a shy introvert um, type person, it's it's the little things like that. What can I do that takes fifteen seconds, or what can I do that takes five minutes but creates a tremendous amount of value for somebody else? Um, making the time to do those things is probably the biggest thing I took away from even writing the book. And so now it's become a habit. I don't actually need the software anymore, which is weird because I I won't tell you the name of the software because I became friends with the guy who founded the company, and then I. Stopped paying him. Um, so I won't mm. mention what it was. Just that um, it used to remind me whenever it needed to follow up with somebody, and I, it stopped sending me reminders because I was following up with people frequently enough because I developed that habit of, hey, I'm just going to take the 15 seconds to shoot him a text and ask how he's doing.
1: Well, and I think, you know, to, there, there is a lot there that I think is really interesting. And to your point about different, and I, I think this is a kind of a myopia that a lot of we business writers can fall into which is like despite like that is what ended up working for you but just like you said that like you know the charismatic like you know always invite people to dinner that's what works for him like for some people like what I find for myself but I was just talking with somebody about this this morning which is stuff that's hard for me to do stuff that I have like resistance to because I'm afraid of it or because it kind of you know, there's an aspect of like emotional valence to it. Um, having a structure in a system really helps me do it more consistently. And, yeah. and so there's an interesting thing where like, I don't know if your attitude toward this shifted over time, but a piece of software might be a great place for somebody to start that like is really starting to not just build the habit, but like maybe has some fear around networking or something like that.
0: Oh yeah, no, I mean don't get me wrong, it was a it was a great place to start. It just was interesting that when you you get into it and you develop that habit, right? And and there are definitely people that don't even need it. You just tell them, "Hey, you know, every every week reconnect with five people and they just do it." Right? And then but for, you know, for me it was it was exactly that. I used the system to build sort of the habit. Some people and and then other people are the sort of super extroverted, which I I mean I guess I am, but I feel like for the last 6 months no one's extroverted. I wish people could see the look on your face. It was just like, ah, like you didn't know how to like sort of work with that idea. Well, so I mean, I, I am fairly extroverted, but I, but I also like I, I, I speak as my primary source of, re- well, until this year as my primary source of revenue, which is by definition, I, and there are introverts that are great public speakers. That's not the point. But like, I actually like the the chat afterwards when people come up to you and tell you how amazing you are. I mean, who doesn't love that? Um, but also ask you questions and you get to discuss the ideas and like it takes me a while to calm back down after a speech right um which is the definition of extroversion right you get energy from being around people not drain energy from your own people um at the same time my wife makes fun of me because like my ideal saturday is like nothing right like what do you want to do nothing right what do you mean that's exactly what I mean. I want to do nothing. I got, I got this book that's taken me a, a, a way too long to read and I would just like to finish it, right? Um, so that's why, that's why the look on my face about like, I guess I'm technically an extrovert, but I also you know, enjoy, enjoy time around no one as well. Well,
1: and, and what I have, I, um, for my journey, and actually I see this with, with some of the coaching clients I work with who have sort of like self identified i mean for me i'll just talk about my journey like i thought i was an extrovert for basically 29 years and then i was like oh like i'm actually not an extrovert like i do get energy for like i'm an ambivert like i get energy from groups and crowds and and people and working with teams but then i find i've really got to go away and take some space for myself to recharge and i think in for for the first chunk chunk of my life my kind of like I think I had a lot of fear of missing out I had a lot of like if there was something going on I wanted to be there in college or or whatever and as I've matured I've realized that like actually my energetics like I do love working with people and I do get kind of excitement from that but I also need to recharge after that Um, even when I have a day of of you know like one-on-one calls with folks it can be it's a, it's a challenge to balance
0: yeah i mean i i would definitely agree with that i um and and i think there's some of that i, I you know i think it, it's beyond just the energy piece too like i i noticed this so i live smack dab in the middle of the country which you know when when half of it is on fire um and the other half is getting hit by hurricanes i feel pretty good actually about <laughs> living in the middle of it but yeah um one of the things i noticed early on is that as jealous maybe from that fear of of missing out or or being left out i don't know how do you how do you make that an acronym fear of being fablo fablo out of out of uh fear of being left out Um, coined it here ladies and gentlemen you've heard it here for the first time (laughs) and possibly the last time (laughs) quite quite jealous of like the new york set or the san francisco set the people who are more sure connected because oh they you know um they're always going to these cool events and, and what have you and then one thing I noticed really interesting is, is that the core of my career is being a writer. I noticed I'm far more productive than them, right? Like I, my first book came out in 2013. So between then and now, it'll basically be seven years and four and a half books, right? Which is- right. A, I don't feel like is an insane pace, but every time I talk to them, they're like, Oh, that's an insane pace. I'm like, Yeah, but I don't get invited to so and so's book launch all the time or so and so's cocktail party or you have to come to this salon at whatever. Like, no. And of course now we're all uh, living the life that I lived for seven years. Um and hopefully f- finding a similar level of productivity. But there there's definitely benefits to being able to, when I want to step into the fray, step into it, and when I don't want to pull back out and focus. I mean, it's it's so the newest book I wrote in eight weeks and the pandemic is part of that but also I mean the a lot of places were opening up at that time it was also sort of the geography of there's nowhere to go and there's no one who's going to bug me so I know I can get this done um type of thing worked really really well and and I have to give a a couple props to my mom known by my kids as Nana who also took them away from me for a long periods of time so I could get that writing done but the business stuff didn't distract me the way it normally does, right? Uh-huh, and I think right. that, can be, that can be a big benefit of being in and out of socialization too, you know? So, um, yes, absolutely. And
1: th- what my mind went to is just like, you're not jumping on a plane every week or every other week to go work with some group, to go give a talk, to go kind of this cadence, whatever whatever your schedule was before. It's, you've got this uninterrupted chunk of,
0: Weeks. Yeah, I mean, and it, to be fair, e- even when even when the world didn't end, um, I still had that benefit because you know. So my my routine was this: basically, the the way to live not in a major city but have people think that you do and be connected network wise into that community is uh, the speaking world is really a spring and a fall sport, right? It doesn't do anything in the summer and it doesn't do anything in the winter, right? Right. Um, so. I knew I had periods of downtime, right? In those, you know, for three months in the summer, or uh, six weeks around the holidays, all of that sort of stuff. And so when you know that, you can, you can sort of spend a little bit more in terms of time away from home in the spring and the fall. And then what I would do is usually make a, what would be, but the other beautiful thing about speaking is if you don't want to be gone for very long, when you live in the middle of the country, you're gone for one night, right? You fly out the night before, you wake up, you speak, you get on a plane, you fly back. So it's three hours from where I live to anywhere, right? On a flight. Um, but I would deliberately make it a two or three day trip and line a lot of things up in that time to sort of get the benefit of checking back in with all of those people, um, et cetera. And that let me really have almost every summer. I mean, it's actually a joke. So we would rent the same beach house every summer for a part of the summer. And if you go to that beach house now and you look on their bookshelves, there are, there are four books on their bookshelves. Cause I wrote like a good chunk of, of those books at the house. Right? That's awesome. Um, and, and it's because I line that sort of summertime up to have that focus. So, I, you know, even, even if we weren't in a sort of COVID, everything shut down world, I probably would have been able to do that same pace because I have that ebb and flow of social time, non social time. And it's not, it doesn't interrupt your life so much when you live in the scrum all the time. There's always another invitation to another something. Um, geography becomes a blessing because you're like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm just, I'm not scheduled to be in New York that week. So I can't make it.
1: Well, right. and I think there's also the the um, and and I think this is something I see a lot of, you know, small business owners struggle with. It's just the cognitive load of making so many decisions. So, you know, there is something where if you've got i mean, and you can do this in different ways. You're talking about a way that's like, kind of like time bound and like organized with the cycle of the seasons and the cycle of the speaking schedule. Yeah. But you can also do it by like having very clear goals that's like, you know, here are the, the 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 four things I'm moving forward this quarter or the, you know, the seven things my team and I are moving forward this quarter. And like if something fits in one of those, it's a yes. If it doesn't, it's a no. And so you kind of you sort of front load that decision so you're not having to constantly cycle about like, well, should I get on this call? Should I do this thing? it's like it's i find that's a a good way of you know i mean attention and decision making is our the two of our the, like the the scarcest resources we have our ability to attend to things and to make decisions and so you're talking about a, like a strategy or kind of a byproduct of your your i mean i don't want to say byproduct cuz i suspect it's fairly intentional but the kind of rhythm of your life that really supports like saying yes when you can say yes and and just sort of th- there's a you're not gonna fly to New York to go to a cocktail event, right? There's right. kind of a really nice, a nice um, rhythm in that.
0: Yeah. And I, I think it's possible to build um build other boundaries in, in that capacity. Like I'm I'm a, I'm actually a massive fan of the of the phrase I don't and using that where most people use I can't. You know, oh, I'm sorry, I can't because it's on a Saturday and this and that. Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. I don't schedule anything on weekends. I just don't, right? Like that's, you, you can say that's a character flaw of mine, but I love the focus, right? So, I mean, and it's the same way with, yeah, I, there's a lot of things in, in life, whether that's your personal life or whether that's running your business, that abstinence is actually easier than moderation right because when mm, you can definitively yes. say I don't I just don't I don't do that I I don't go to networking events I go to small dinners with four or five people some of whom I might not know before but I don't go to the cocktail hour right or or I don't do I don't do I don't coach right because I want to be focused on building out content that hopefully is self-paced and I might do a little focus groups from time to time on that content but like I don't do that so no I'm sorry I can't do it I it's not even I can't do it I just I don't do that that's not part of my business Right, right, and that is you know we we uh,
1: have a, I think a mutual friend in Roger Martin. Yes.
0: Yeah. Well, mutual friend and I don't know if he's a if if this is true for you, but mutual friend and mutual intellectual hero. But yes.
1: Yeah, and I mean he he's been yes totally, and I think your what you're saying is something that I use in in thinking about my own business, and it's exactly what you're saying. It's like like. You know, his whole definition of strategy is two questions. It's yeah. it's where do you play and how do you win. And I think that that is something that a lot of, uh, first of all, is just really an iterative process of defining. You do not arrive at an answer and then you are set with it, right? I mean, the world changes, your focus shifts, your ability shifts, your interest shifts. But kind of at any given moment, you should always be sort of pushing yourself to clarify, like, you know. Who who do you who do you work with? What do you do? And and why are you good at it? And what I hear you saying is like, I do I, you know, I don't coach people. I develop and deliver amazing content that can be given at scale. And I work with teams and I speak and I do these other things. But it's a really and I write books. Um but it's a great way of I think it is something that a lot of you know, a lot of lawyers that I work with, I think struggle to
0: um to make that decision and sort of stick to it yeah so and i and i have to back up because yeah i'm a massive fan of the two questions if 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 i if i remember roger's stuff right the two questions come after you identify your winning aspiration right which is itself is something i don't think a lot of people have done even for their business like what is your winning aspiration Right. Um, for me, it was actually really simple. It, it, I feel I don't think I've ever said this live on a podcast. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm hyping everything up. Right. Because this is. But, you know, I went to I went to an event. Um, do you know Marshall Goldsmith? Yeah, I do. Not not well. So Marshall Marshall has this little cadre. of. It's called the MG 100. But there are 247 of us now. Um, of yeah, disciples I don't know what you would call it but people who've, who back when we could meet in person would meet quarterly at whatever whatever city marshal happened to be in we'd tag a weekend onto that and just kind of hang out and identify and, and in in that group one time we were really um, trying to design the life we love and all that sort of stuff and I came out with the winning aspiration of you know how would you know if your career was successful and I said well if I sold 25,000 copies of, of my books per year and I did 25 speaking events at and I won't say the revenue part but there's another one in there um, and it was basically, that's it. If I get that many invitations to speak and I sell that many books, that's boom, right? Now, ironically, inside that winning aspiration becomes the answers to sort of the first question. Where do we play? Will we play in the writer yes. and speaker world. And maybe I do, I've, I do a lot of um, kind of max three-hour trainings, right? So like it starts with a talk, but then it goes into here's how to apply like for the networking thing, for example, right? It's half keynote, half exercises that we could do together, but it's always inside of like, I'm gone by that by lunch, right? Or, or we don't start till lunch and then we go to the end of the day. Um, and the reason is that there, there wasn't any revenue source, other revenue source identified in that in that winning aspiration, right? So there's my, it automatically sort of sets up those questions. And it took eight years to come up with the answer um, to, those, to that. But once you, to me, that's the big thing. Once you get that, like then, even your where to play and how to win becomes easier, and I think a lot of business owners um haven't even identified that i mean I, I, not not to harp on lawyers, but like I know too many that still don't know what type of law they practice you know what I mean exactly <laughs> exactly, totally,
1: or even even within what type of law they practice, like like what their um like yeah what their winning proposition is like I know. A, a family law um person who's she's really skilled and really amazing. And she is she does collaborative divorce, which is yeah. a very particular subset, but she also does litigation. She also does litigated divorces. And it's like those two things like pull her in very different directions and make it so much harder to kind of build a sustainable practice. And that's I mean, I think you're you're exactly right. And I um I've become buddies with these these uh, two guys that wrote a book called The Lean Law Firm, which is all about kind of, you know, theory of constraints um, applying to to law practices. And one of the things they talk about is, you know, there's loads of benefits for specialization for, I mean... It, you know, inbound marketing for um, you know, h- how you message to the particular people you think are going to be a good fit, but also for getting really good at the matters that you do so you can do them faster. And so you yeah. can like just increase your throughput rate, which increases, you know, in turn increases your your billing and means that you are going to be doing less context switching. And I think that you know they've written about this in the context of of law firms and to your point I see this a lot with lawyers but I think that it applies to loads of small businesses I mean even even things that are very hands on and and seem like in theory that they should be general like a massage practice or a yoga studio it's like you can really niche down within that and and really just dramatically change how effectively you're able to serve your your customers
0: yeah oh totally I mean I so are uh, a case in two points. One of our neighbors in, in the neighborhood we are is a um, family law attorney, and, but she only does um, adoptions, and she only does sort of local adoptions. In other, in other words, sort of the, the unwed mother wants to put the baby up for adoption. She just does that, and she does it ridiculously well. Uh, when we were getting our estates and all of that, and trusts and all that sort of thing run out, the, the lawyer that we use lives in Utah, which is not where we live, right? And the reason is that when we were looking for the person that fit our profile, right? The thinker, speaker, person, my wife is an ER doctor. So there's a lot of liability going on both sides and all that sort of stuff. We were looking at who's, who's the best person to handle. It just so happened that firm was in Utah. Now could my neighbor have drawn up all that stuff? Probably. Right. But I was, but first of all, she doesn't, right. That's that power of, I don't, I don't do that. But even if I did, I wouldn't be great at it. And so, you know, uh, we we ended up with the with this crew, and that's that's it's a it's a whole lot easier to be referable when yes. you're when you're known for that sort of one thing. And the irony is, even when you're known for that one thing, like you get referred, and then it extends from there, right? So so my last book was about networking, right? And I did a bunch of different, uh, done a lot of content around that. I've worked with a couple different organizations with their l and d departments to build curriculum for their people again that's that at scale l and
1: l and d is learning and development yeah sorry learning
0: learning development um to build out curriculum for their employees right of course we had to rehash like rework all of that curriculum when it suddenly became how do you do all of this sort of stuff remotely um which is good it kept me busy because all the speaking events were canceled but that being being sort of known as that in these two or three firms led to them Saying well, okay, so if this is what works for professional contexts, would this work for um, for keeping it for managers who need to keep in touch with their employees when you work in a remote environment? Yeah, it would, right? And so it, it's this whole other, and that's that morphed and iterated, and that's the book four that comes out in January is all about this future of remote work thing, but it's based in very similar principles from friend of a friend and under new management. So when you when you become referable on the one thing, you end up getting referred for stuff you wouldn't even like predicted. And that's how that's how you answer the next question of how will we win, right? Is we get so sort of good at that little niche that you become much more referable than just like no nobody wants the oh yeah my uncle's a lawyer he could help you people want the oh you're adopting somebody from I know the exact person for that.
1: Well, and and I think there's something to layer on to what you just said because it's it is you know the idea of the flywheel, which is not a new idea in in business, but is something that I think I have started really appreciating as I have honed my content and, and honed my niche, which now that we're talking about lawyers, it really is doing a lot of work with lawyers in at, on an individual basis, but also law firms and, and legal departments that are looking to navigate this whole um, morass of digital transformation and change that they're facing. Um, but one of the things that that is interesting that you just touched on is like, when you put a pin in the map and you've got people kind of gathering around that pin those people will tell you where they're interested in going next right and so what you just yeah. shared is the kind of the customer story of like you're working with a team and they say well hey this is really useful for this set of people like the same you you can now apply your same knowledge to a problem that you weren't even thinking about because somebody brings you that problem and says can you help us think about this now and it's like yeah, you can, because that's what you do. You're a thinker, you're a creator, you're a writer. But you're also getting the kind of, by being out there in the world in the way that you are, you're getting the, the sort of the, the substrate or the scaffolding that you can grow your next part of the creation on. And you wouldn't get that if you were all over the map.
0: Right. Or or, and this is the other, I think, key thing, and bring it back to a friend of a friend. Or you can refer that to somebody you know who does that way yes. better than you. And then two things happen. One, that other person is grateful to you. And I don't want to say owes you a favor, et cetera, but you get known in the community as a giver, which is always good. But two, even that original client is still, you didn't even solve their problem and they're still grateful to you. Right? Totally. Like you didn't do anything, but you get sort of all of the, the sort of, so they come back to you again anyway, right? Like, so it, it, you, so you can either choose to go, okay, this is where, you know, I want to go or you can, or you can refer it out. So either option you choose is still, you know, sort of great for you. And you're, especially if you're building a business around one person or two people, like both of us, you know, if, what's the line from Jay-Z? I'm not a businessman. I'm a businessman, right? Both, both of us are sort of in the, in that role. Um, <laughs> as are a lot of lawyers, et cetera, or everybody else we've been harping on this call. Um, and so that's basically you can go either out and either out is great for you but none of that happens unless you get really really clear on that
1: well and i think that there is there is a kind of an underlying stance that really aids the ability to to say i don't and to refer people out which is this stance of abundance rather than scarcity right if you if you kind of are in a place of scarcity where you Sort of like where anything that comes your way, you want to do because you're worried that you're not going to get the next m- money to come in, or you're not going to get the next opportunity. It turns out to be really counterproductive, right? I mean, I I remember talking with a fellow consultant who she like she had an amazing network, and she uh, at the time I was working with a lot of just people in the, in the software engineering world, and. I remember asking her, I was like, oh, like, you know, so-and-so at such-and-such company, like, would you make an introduction? And her response was basically like, I'm not sure why I would help you with this. I might want to talk to them later. And I was like, first of all, we do very different things. Right. And like, a- and like, you're you're not helping me. Like, you're kind of, you're creating a match in the universe. And like, it may or may not go anywhere. Like, we may or may not be the kind of the right puzzle pieces to, to click and meet. But it, even if we're not, like we're going to have a valuable conversation for him and for me. And like, it was just, it was really interesting. And I think it was really grounded in um, kind of a, a, a
0: form of fear in some ways. Yeah, no, I agree. So, so one of the things I say often is that every introduction is also a recommendation, right? And I, and I usually say that in the context of if I'm going to connect two people, I am vouching for them to each other. So I need to make sure it's a worthwhile connection, but your example is actually the flip side of that, which is, the person who never has anything positive to say about anybody else, who never recommends anyone else, doesn't get known as a giver, doesn't get known as good, at, gets known as kind of a narcissist, right? Like kind of a person that if, if, you, if you think you can handle all of that stuff, then you've got an unrealistic expectation of yourself and you're, it's probably not going to pay off for you in the end. So, so it goes both ways. Every introduction is, is a recommendation, but the people who never recommend anything are not all that valuable to the network.
1: Well right and I think
0: you know I'll, I'll just go um
1: I don't want to throw my anonymous friend under the bus like like you know <laughs> I, will. I will I'll throw the, your the anonymous I... <laughs> friend
0: under the anonymous bus the proverbial bus your anonymous friend under the proverbial bus
1: <laughs> um you know she she was at that moment doing
0: <laughs> I love how much we amuse each other <laughs> Uh the seven you know, people she, who are still listening to this are also amazing. <laughs> right.
1: Right. Um she is um she's doing the best with the tools that she has, right? She is and 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 she's doing a great job in lots of aspects of her of her work and her approach. Um, but I I do think that this is um it's, you know, it's, there's just an element of, of fear in this.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and to, to circle all the way back to why everyone should read one of my books, um, that, <laughs> that's the idea inside a friend of a friend, right, is that the problem with the networking advice books is that they get you to think a little too transactionally, too systematically, to where the contacts in your Address book are yours, and they're they're your sort of property, and they're your resource to be tapped one day, et etc. Instead of thinking about it's about the network and how can you create value for it, and would this connection create value? Great, that's going to reflect great on me too. I'm still creating value. You know, social capital in network science terms is always measured at the so- social level; it's not measured at the individual level. But a lot of these advice books make you think about you as the center of the network. And then you end up, you know, you you get misled into adopting that same mentality. So I don't I don't hold it against her per se. It's, right. it's all too easy to do if all you're doing is is following these sort of guideline books about how to build that system. I'm not interested in the, building the system. I'm interested in building the community that's already around me, and trusting that if I do that, the community will take care of me too.
1: Right, and it's and and we're we're sort of um, touching on what I think is this really interesting area where is it's like it's this intersection of like like woo-woo and like (laughs) business and right and and it's something I think about all the time. I, I put it to somebody the other day, which is somebody I was working with the other day, which is that I put it like this. It's like the 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 beauty of running your own business is that of running your own thing you know, the, the, the business of Berkus, the, the, the business that I run is that you realize that, that you are the only element responsible for your success or standing in the way of your success.
0: Yeah. What's well, that second part? That's the harder lesson, right? Well, and that's, and that's,
1: and that's the part that's, it's, you know, it's, it's, terrifying, right? You can spend a lot of time feeling at the effect of things. And so I'm curious in kind of your journey, you know, you're trying lots of different things. You're, you know, as you said, you've written a bunch of books. Um, You have these goals that, that you are, um, that are ambitious, but you're kind of, you know, it seems like working with them with, with some amount of ease and lightness. I mean, what is, what is your journey to kind of owning your journey been like?
0: Yeah, um, I'm, I'm not too sure I have. I certainly had people yell at me uh, as recently as two weeks ago about, about the idea of like, you, you make little comments and they reveal that you think something is standing in your way that's not you, right? That, oh, I'm just not, I didn't get picked or I didn't get famous enough or this or that, right? Um, so I'm not sure I have. I mean, the, the only thing, what I can say is the only thing that's worked for me consistently is trying lots of different types of content and then seeing which one people like. Right. You know, I, I the very first one was a podcast. I actually, I don't, I, Chris, I don't, don't take this as a judgment. I don't know that I would start a podcast right now. Um, I, although I'm thinking about it, it probably wouldn't be an interview based show, et cetera. It would actually just be the audio feed of the videos that I make, right? But um, first, first it was the podcast sort of mixed with some writing and actually it was, the podcast was my thing and then the writing was usually on other sites, trying to write for HBR or Wall Street Journal or all of, get, get these op-eds placed in a lot of different places. Um, and all of those are sort of a form of experimentation. Then uh, I did a little with video, but at the time, this, so this would have been like 2014, the, the world of social media was actually different then. and didn't support video as much as it does now, right? Then in 2018, um, well, so I ran the podcast through to the end of 2017. 2018 we launched friend of a friend and so I sort of didn't have time to keep doing an interview show and all that sort of thing I was being interviewed on all sorts of shows and then when the 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 stress of launch sort of recedes you know it's sort of like it's like I maybe this is too ever present in my mind but it's sort of like campaign season right you're doing all of this work right up to a definitive date and then it just sort of disappears and you figure out whether or not it was worth it or not yeah Um, That's when we flipped to kind of video, and then we started. I started experimenting with video, almost as a form of writing, if this makes sense. So, like now, my my rhythm, my habit, is actually that I outline a video. Like, uh, I could pull out my phone and show you the one that I'm going to record in a (laughs) in a day or two. um, Is uh how the best teams work together and so it's 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 really sort of a a more practical approach to like the google people analytics study around um psychological safety and that's a an line of that. project aristotle right aristotle thank you I was, I was i should probably get that down before i record the video um but <laughs> but like we have editing <laughs> right exactly but we um so so then i'll actually record the 10 minute video sort of talking through it then take the transcript of that and then sort of write it right? Then cut it up into other little shareable bits, et cetera. But it's a system that came from experimenting with all of those different medium first, and and dropping the ones that didn't work. I mean, I, I there there was a so the original the original podcast was called Leader Lab, which was apparently a trademark infringement. But it took them four years to find us. Um, <laughs> and there was there was a PDF style journal called Leader Leader Lab Quarterly that we put out um, that was sort of like kind of similar to those Change This Manifestos that were really popular in like 2014, 15. Um, we did, uh, we did a, a second podcast called Shorts, which was audio essays, which was again, writing first and then reading the writing, which was actually dreadfully boring because um, people don't want to be talked to at, right? Um, so we tried, I mean, a ton of that different stuff. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm, the big part of that is I'm still discovering the ways in which I hold myself back. But the thing that I refuse to let hold me back is sort of this fear of experimentation. If there's a new medium out there, I will play around with it, see if it works. If it doesn't resonate with my audience, I, I won't do it. And with pretty much every medium that comes out there, with the exception of TikTok, uh, I'm willing to experiment and play around with and yeah,
1: well, and, and I and I think you in in talking about what you do, you really touched on something, and you kind of brought it brought it there to the end, which is you really touched on this fact that um, what you do is be willing to experiment. And you talked about not like like does this make me a failure if this doesn't work? It's like does this like does this medium resonate with my audience? And if it does, then I'm gonna do more of it. And if it doesn't, then I'm gonna do less of it or I'm, I'm gonna drop it and try something else. And it's like, I, what I don't hear you saying is like, like oh, that makes me, David Burkus a failure. What I hear you saying is like, I'm, I'm, I'm David Burkus. I'm trying all this stuff and some of it's gonna work and some of it's not. And I think that in itself yeah. is a big stance, it's, it's a big stance to embrace.
0: Yeah, I uh, yes, I totally agree, and I I think again where a lot of um, to go back to our questions around where do we play and how do we win, like I don't know how you answer that second question unless you've got good data on the tactics that'll actually work. Like I don't I don't know how will how I'll win until I try a bunch of things and then I go hey I'm really good at this. Like I didn't know, um, you know I fancied myself a pretty good speaker in person and all of that sort of stuff, um. I didn't know how, sounds so egotistical. I didn't know how good I could be on camera, on video, until I d- started recording them every single week. I did a thing, an experiment for 18 months called the Daily Burke, where every weekday I put out a two to three minute video, right? And we would batch them. We'd record you know, four or five of them at the same time. But the point is, you got two minute, you flip the switch, you do it, right? And then and then, what's interesting is I started doing work for other uh, publications other outlets etc that were doing video and all of them started going like you know oh, we need to do this we want your script to do the teleprompter or whatever i'm like well you said it's like a two minute video right they're like yeah i'm like i got this don't worry about it <laughs> right yeah um but it came from 18 months of of sort of experimentation to find out like oh this is actually pretty good this needs to be part of my how will i win right right now one way I know that, that I won't win, right, is by I couldn't do that. Even though I fancy myself a writer, I couldn't do that if I was trying to write an article every single day. I'd, I'd, I'd end up publishing like listicles every time, right? Um, it would look like Burke feed instead of BuzzFeed. It'd be terrible. Um, other people might, might be, I know, the joke is even terrible. The joke, the pun is even terrible. That's how bad it would be. Uh, so, so, but you, you only kind of learn it through, um, through experimentation. And then you build out the system that works. And I think where a lot of small businesses fail is their answer to how will we win is how does everybody else do it? Like, again, not to pick on lawyers, but like the easiest people to insult are like those DUI lawyers that put stuff up in front of urinals. I know, you know, I know you've seen one because they're everywhere in every men's room, right? Yeah. Which is actually beautiful placement, but like oh, but that, that, that person's a disgrace to the profession. Yeah, but he just bought a new boat. Like from a business standpoint, that's a, they're willing to do something that are people. or like the, you know, the crazy lawyer TV commercials back when those first, again, I'm not saying go out and do those, but I'm saying those people had a personality that worked well in that context and saw that nobody was doing things that way and thought, what if we play around with it, right? But the worst way to do it is the way everybody's gonna do it because that's just like, that's a race to mediocrity.
1: Totally. yeah. well, and and I think your your point about the podcast, the fact that I'm starting a podcast now is really interesting. And I've thought a lot about it, and it's a really it's a crowded market. And it's like not clear that this is going to be something that um, like that works. But what I like about it is, you know, for so for me, I think a big part of this is me kind of overcoming my own fear and overcoming my own sort of inner constraints. And I will say that um, it, it's pushed me to try stuff in a medium that I'm not comfortable with, first of all. And actually, it's cool because you can email interesting people and be like, hey, will you be on my podcast? And they'll say yes, like Dude, a lot of should, the time.
0: You should have seen how great that trick was in 2010 when like I, iTunes didn't even have reviews. There was no way to know how popular a podcast was. Daniel Pink was the second episode ever in the podcast. Totally.
1: <laughs> you know, and I think that's what social media was like in, yeah. in 2011, 2012, what, what Twitter was like. And and it's not now. And and that's okay. But I, I guess I think that... Um, I was writing and I was thinking, I had some anxiety. We're we're launching this podcast next week. And so I had some anxiety kind of leading up to that. And I was like, why do I have anxiety about this? Well, actually, I'll take a step back. I didn't know I had anxiety about it. I had back, back, my back was hurting. And then I like really like settled into it. And I was like, oh shit, like what's happening here is that I'm releasing something and I don't know how good it is. And I don't, I think aspects of it are fun and good, but I think aspects of it are not great. And... I went back to, and I watched this YouTube video of Ira Glass talking about the creative journey. Do you know what I'm talking about? The
0: idea that you have taste, but you don't have skills. So you think everything you do sucks. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, not just you think everything you do sucks. A lot of what you do does suck. And you've (laughs) got to get through that. You've got to get through that valley. What I I think of it is the kind of uncanny valley of creativity. So you've got to get to the other side of it. But the only way you get to the other side of it is by doing it. Is by every day taking a step forward, and your video thing really resonates with that. Like it's like that, like you just do a lot, a a big volume of work, and now you're on the other side of it, and and you're good at it, and that's pretty
0: awesome. Yeah, no, totally. And and I don't, I didn't mean to harp on, um, no, 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 no. like everyone who does a podcast to fail, because I think it's it's a win for another reason, which is that people don't know, not not to get super personal. I don't coach, but I'm going to coach you, Chris people a lot of times don't have a relationship with the author and that can become a problem, right? Like it's not a large percentage of people that even subscribe to my newsletter that click over and watch the videos of me, but the, the ones that do like, it's this fun little inner community and people have yeah. people build that relationship. Like you don't get 1000 raving fans, if you will, which is an article by Kevin Kelly that we will link in the show notes below. Um, I see that's from my podcast. days. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> you don't build that relationship (laughs) the muscle without some consistent way to put out content and so it's whatever kind of works um um, for you and you know in your case now you're building you you know you coach a lot of different business owners etc so long converse drawn out conversations that reveal insight like that's perfect what do i do like i i do speeches and maybe some training curriculum and other pieces of content that put at scale like the big thing i'm actually trying to do is figure out that when everybody wants to come back together and it's safe to do so first i think people are going to want to come back together like hugely right but i also think the big lesson i learned here is that a lot of in-person training absent a learning journey with conversations afterwards and all that sort of stuff is kind of worthless right right so um that was the other reason for playing around with with videos is that idea of content that scales, et cetera. If people are going to hire me to come train or speak or whatever, they probably want to see me, not just hear me, right? right. If people are going to hire Chris to have conversations that reveal insights, then they need to hear Chris having. So, so it's, a, again, that right medium for the thing. So it's it's not about do this because it's like the, 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 I guess the worst thing you can do is what everyone's doing, right? And then the next worst thing you can do is the thing that's just sort of easiest. What it is, is that match between what is your winning aspiration? What do, what do I want to build a whole business and a life around? And great. What's the right content piece to be creating to bring that to me? For me, it, it yeah. turned out to be video, which is weird. Cause again, I fancy myself a writer, but right. You also know this cause you wrote a great proposal that people thought you hired out. Um, a lot of writing is rewriting. And so the real secret of the video is the video gives me the script and then the writing begins. Right. And it, writing is just rewriting. So um, that's been a, a, a lot of fun, sort of learning thing too that we got from experimentation. That's awesome. Um, so your your new book comes out in
1: January. So January we're a 5th. little January fifth, kicking off the new year. What about it? Are you um, are you excited about? What are you most excited about with it?
0: Well, I think um, I think the timing of it. I besides having to compete with like Christmas and whatever this year's Furby will be. Um, you know, don't buy your boss a Furby, buy your boss a copy of Leading from Anywhere. It'll help way better. Uh, (laughs) um, I think I think around December or January, it's already starting to happen. But I think the conversation will shift to where the the remote work conversation was. First of all, was like a giant oh crap moment, right? Like January one, it was not possible. We needed to spend billions of dollars building out amazing, elaborate headquarters. We needed to pay for people's dry cleaning and watch their kids and give them free food and all of that sort of stuff. And there's no way you could do what we do remotely. And then by March 15th, we figured out that we can actually do it remotely because we had to, right? And then by you know, so that Jan one by by July 1st, everybody was like, Yeah, we should we should keep going with this. But let's be practical here. A lot of businesses are in long-term leases, you might be able to reduce it, but you're not gonna just like, oh yeah, we have no headquarters anymore, etc. A lot of people are going to want to actually gather. Some people, like myself, have an eight-year-old and a six-year-old that are at home some of the time when they're like out of school years, et cetera. So in the summer, I don't want to work from home, right? I want to go right. somewhere. And so the future of work is. Destined to be this kind of increased flexibility where there is a place to go, but you're not expected to be there, or you're only expected to be there for certain meetings that we label as like all hands meetings, right? But for the most part, you're from anywhere. That's why we call the book Leading from Anywhere, because people are going to be working from anywhere. And what I'm excited about is that that we're at the point. I I saw this, I I made this bet in like June, well, June, because that's when we started writing the book. But we're starting to already have that conversation, right? Which is, I think, I think a good thing. I think rem- this idea of everyone go home and let's all work from home didn't really work. But we know from prior years that we, um, we give lip service to flexibility in the workplace. We grant it when we need to, but we, those people have a stigma on them right? Like there's, there's a lot of research that flex time increases gender inequality because no surprise, women are, tend to ask for it more often. And when they do, we assume it's for home or family reasons. And when men do it, we assume it's because they're a producer and they want to get out there and network. Like it's stupid, just absolutely yeah. stupid assumptions, but we still make them. Um, so this idea that we forced everyone into it, and then we all got to have this flexibility conversation at the same time, my grand hope is that removes that stigma. Now we're gonna to have to figure out how to manage in a place with increased flexibility, but that's okay because that's I wrote a book about that. Um, <laughs> right. But that workplace is it like I dream of a work experience where everyone at that company doesn't find the office funny, like does just doesn't understand what the joke is about, right? Or like I have a red stapler somewhere in these crazy bookshelves that you're looking at. There's a red stapler from office space, right? My stapler. I dream of a world where nobody gets that joke. Because everybody's work life is enjoyable. They don't feel like they're at a cubicle farm, right? The the idea of going to the office is seen as I get to go see my friends, not, you know, that we look forward to going to the office the way we would look forward to going to that one big conference that we enjoy every year, right? Like that would be my ideal world. And we're closer to that than we've ever been before. Now, it, it took a tragedy to get there. And I don't want to minimize that, Right. But I'm glad that we are having this conversation so we can push towards that world so that some good can come out of that tragedy in terms of our our work experience and that sort of thing. I'm really hopeful for that. I think embedded in this is another idea which I've thought a
1: lot about, which is that, that something like a meeting, or you just said the conference that you're excited to go to, like... Groups of people convening is great. And the power to convene is one of the underappreciated powers that organizations, that leaders have. And part of why it's underappreciated is because it's so often misused. People convene for lots of stupid reasons. They convene to push out information that would be much better in a written document, or even just like an emailed PowerPoint deck. Um, But when you convene people with energy and with purpose, that, I think, is where part of, I think, what kind of the next generation of work could see if we do it right, is that we bring people together for creative purposes, and then we let them go and do work that is productive and bring them back for creative purposes. And, and we kind of have this sort of, this rhythm of it, this sort of, se- not it, it doesn't have to be on the timescale of seasons, but like this kind of this ebb and flow of it where we're bringing
0: people together for the right reasons, not for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Agreed. Um, So I've studied companies that have been fully distributed from the get go for about five years now. No surprise. They, a lot of them were featured in the new book, but a lot of them were in under new management as well. And most of them have once or twice a year annual gatherings. And the primary purpose of those is to get people together, right? The primary purpose of those is, I mean, if we're to use the fancy schmancy organizational psychology, there's a, there's a element of coworking called cadence, right? That when you have cadence with your coworkers, when you know their work styles, you know how they deal with expectations, you develop the sort of rhythm, you start to click and you work well together, you have cadence with them. Um, cadence is what prevents people from freaking out when they send an email at 4.30 in the afternoon and haven't heard anything at 8.30 the next morning, oh, well, we know that Chris, you know, Chris has got to take care of his dog. That's a big deal. So we don't, uh, he'll get back to me, you know, in 24 hours and that'll be fine, right? That's cadence. That's a shared understanding of those expectations, et cetera. The fastest way to build cadence is to work alongside someone, not sort of remotely. And so these companies are putting together these events. And the primary reason is to build bonds and to build cadence so that when we leave, we still collaborate well together. Now, some information is still presented, Right, but it's not like we need we need to talk about our new reimbursement policy. That could totally have been a slide deck, right? Just email me out a video recording, whatever, right? So when you when you plan these re, reconvenings with that intent, you design a totally different meeting that is looked forward to, instead of like the oh it's the company annual whatever, right? Um, I you know, and I would see this. There there are some organizations that I think do this well. Um, that are not fully distributed, like an a, a organization that is mass, mostly Salesforce, for example, um, not the company Salesforce, but I mean, most of their headcount are salespeople. They'll have usually a January kickoff or sometime around the beginning of the fiscal year kickoff. And those events are, are, yes, they are to convey information, give you updates on what's coming down about this and that and whatever. But the other real reason is like, we will just want to get people excited about our mission again before they get back out and to talk about this year's products. We want, that's, again, a different purpose. And when you start with those purposes, you design a meeting that I think is, is great. What if any time somebody went to the office, it sort of felt like that, right? Like what, what totally. if the weekly meeting felt like that? And, and, and I think it would if we, if we remembered that on a small scale, right? That like the big reasons to call a meeting or to discuss something or to make a decision, they are not to outline new information, right?
1: Yeah, totally, totally. Well, David Burkus, the new book comes out January 5th. It is leading from anywhere. I am really excited for it. And I've had a real pleasure chatting with you today. Yeah, it's been a ton of fun. Thanks for listening. To stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways, sign up for the Breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com slash giveaway. So what's this giveaway? Every few months, I bundle together three or four influential books, often written or recommended by guests from the show and I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well, so you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners. Subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember, if you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. The breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Ray Avant is our assistant producer. and makes everything run smoothly. Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter, available at chrisclearfield.com slash The Breakdown. Laura Stack is our editor, and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening, and be well until our next Breakdown.